I'll never forget one of our global staff members serving in Eastern Europe for some time telling me about an event he witnessed at the British Museum. He and his family were visiting the museum along with uh, thousands of others, of course, as usual from all around the world, crowding the displays and roaming the aisles. If you've ever been there, you are literally stunned, aren't you, by artifacts dating back thousands of years. You can see those huge bowls with folded wings carved out of stone that stood in the palace between which Jonah himself once walked. You can see wall tiles bearing images Daniel saw with his own eyes as he entered Babylon. You can see statues that Moses may very well have touched as a as a boy. It's amazing to see what God has preserved to validate the record of Scripture. Well, he and his family were at the museum because they had the unique opportunity to actually see the display of an ancient Greek manuscript, the Alexandrinus. This is a manuscript that was given to Charles I in the 17th century as a gift. The British Museum had announced that it would be on display. So there they stood looking at this this copy of, of the New Testament that is 15 centuries old. But he said to me, Stephen, the interesting thing was, and the tragic thing about this display is that it was virtually ignored. We were the only people standing there gazing at this amazing work of God's preservation. In fact, there was a crowd of people in a frenzy to get past us to another display which held original copies of music autographed by the Beatles. I mean, that display got all the attention. I mean, why look at an ancient copy of a letter from God when you can look at a musical score signed by Lennon? I mean, come on. That's really not a surprise, though, is it? To the world at large, the idea that God has spoken to mankind doesn't really get all that much press. It doesn't really garner much pizzazz out of people to think about the preservation of something that God has spoken to man that we now even hold in our laps and in our hands. But for those of us who believe in Christ, it is indeed precious and wonderful to us. It is the word of life, as John the Apostle called it. We treasure it, don't we? I have in my study at home a a gift from the president of a mission agency. It's an original page out of uh, one of the 1611 copies of the King James Version. It's framed in glass just above my desk. It's, It's actually hard to read. You wouldn't want to read it because of all the changes in the English language and especially the spelling. There are F's instead of S's for one example. My framed copy is from the Gospel by Luke, and it amazes me to actually own a page out of a Bible 400 years old. I also have in my study at home, just across the shelf, a small piece of notebook paper, also framed in glass, where a Chinese believer had written down their own translation of Scripture in the Mandarin. And they did it because they didn't own a Bible. That was it. That was it. The page also given to me as a gift once the owner received a copy of the Bible in his own language. 
But that, that page serves to remind me of the treasure of the word and, and the courage and the love of believers around the world who long to hold it and, and to read it and to treasure it and to know it is in fact the words of life. Challenges me never to take the book for granted. Without it, among other things, we, we would never conceive we would never conceive of God's atoning plan for mankind. We would be left in darkness to grope after that intuitive sense of God we know's out there. As Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. And the world is groping, isn't it? Incurably religious, desperately attempting to deal with that intuitive sense of sin. Well, the Apostle John, this 80-year-old man, has told us, look, I'm writing you this letter because I want your joy to be full and ours with you. He says in chapter 2, I'm writing this letter so that you can understand that your sins are forgiven through Christ alone. Just recently, 20 million pilgrims bathed in the polluted waters of the Ganges River, believing that its waters are the nectar of immortality, believing that this goddess represented by this river, would forgive their sins. And so certain dates in January and February, every so many years, bring millions to the banks of this river. The Bible contains the remedy for sin. And even though that would be the largest religious gathering on the planet, there is no forgiveness in a river. There is forgiveness in blood. There is no forgiveness... In water, there is forgiveness in a cross. There is no forgiveness in a goddess no one has seen or heard. There is forgiveness in the Son of God who came to be seen and heard. And John says, this is why I'm writing this to you. Because left alone, we might wander as the world wanders, groping after God. John would say, no, 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 that's exactly why I've written down for you these words from God. God has spoken. There is no need to fear. How in the world can that be true? John will tell us in chapter 2 now and at verse 1 where we find ourselves as he writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now let's just spend some time uncovering the treasure of these words from God. The first thing John does here is he alludes to our direction in life. Notice he's writing to Christians. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. In fact, seven times in this letter, this aged apostle will refer to his audience, them and us, as little children, an affectionate term. No doubt many of these original readers had come to faith under his ministry where he pastored in Ephesus for many years. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see, from what John has just taught us, 
in the earlier paragraph about the ongoing cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf, uh, the believer might be led to fall into the trap of the Gnostics or the Docetists, who basically said, look, sinning isn't really that bad a thing. So we're under grace. Lighten up, loosen up, live a little. Have you heard that? You're forgiven. No, John would quickly add, look, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. In other words, so that you may steer clear of sin, so that you may avoid sin. Another error of interpretation would be to say, as some have also said, that John is teaching sinless perfection. That a Christian can arrive at a place where they no longer sin anymore. Would you notice that John writes, so that you what? So that you may not sin. John isn't telling Christians they'll never sin again. John is encouraging Christians to not want to sin again. It's a big difference. He isn't encouraging our perfection. He is encouraging our direction. Don't let it be towards sin. Let it be toward holiness. And the character of Christ, you're modeling your life after. And we want to avoid sin. Our daily prayers, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Why? Because we can't handle it. And we hate sin. And we love the Savior. In fact, that's the highest motive for obeying Him. That is the highest motive. Now, there are three ascending motives for obedience. The lowest incentive is fear. The next would be duty. The ultimate would be love. Obeying because we have to, that's fear. Obeying because we need to, that's duty. Obeying because we want to, that's love. A slave obeys out of fear. He has to. An employee obeys because, well, he needs to. He might not like his job, but he needs his paycheck. But a Christian obeys because he wants to. That's the highest ascending motive and incentive, as John will talk about throughout his letter, the Christian obeys out of love. In fact, if you think about it, we learn to obey this way as children. We began at that basic incentive. We learn to obey because we had to, and it was out of fear. Right? Did you have the same happy child that I had? Fear. The fear of being spanked. That outweighed the act of liberty or disobedience. We learned to avoid that. There was a bush right outside the kitchen door where my mother could easily open that screen door and grab a switch. That bush, we prayed it would die. It flourished. My three brothers and I, plenty of switches throughout our entire childhood. In fact, my mother asked me a couple of months ago, she's just our biggest fan as a mother is, and she said, why is it that, you know, whenever you mention some childhood memory, we're always giving you a spanking? (laughs) Because that was my childhood. (laughs) I was a slow learner. It took me a while to learn, saying, I can't help it didn't work. See, John doesn't want us to come to the point here in chapter 2 where we say, you know, we just can't help it. He is not teaching perfection from sin, nor 
that we have some obligation to sin. He's saying that we can actually help it now that we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. I love the illustration of this truth pulled from history by Donald Gray Barnhouse, a Presbyterian pastor, now with the Lord for some years, a former longtime pastor from Philadelphia who influenced so many people, including one of his young interns by the name of Howard Hendricks, who has influenced many of you as well as myself. Barnhouse often gave this analogy to explain why a Christian may sin but doesn't have to sin. He said uh, there was a crew of a large sailing vessel that once had a captain that during a voyage lost touch with his sanity, lost his mind. They didn't know what to do other than lock him in a safe place on board while they, you know, completed their journey, their voyage. According to custom, the first mate immediately became the captain. And from that moment onward, the old captain had no authority whatsoever over the crew or the ship. Problem was, the old captain didn't agree with that arrangement. So from his confined quarters, he could be heard barking out command after command. And, you know, even though the crew was naturally inclined to obey his voice, they had for years, they had to teach themselves that no matter what he commanded, he had no authority over them anymore. They didn't have to obey him. They were to listen to the voice of their new captain. In that same way, then he draws the analogy, the believer trains himself to listen to the new captain, Christ, and ignore that insane old captain, Satan, the world in flesh, that always lead us into trouble. We don't have to. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you understand you no longer have to sin. Now, John would immediately anticipate his audience responding as we would. Well, that's wonderful news. I don't have to sin. But what happens when I do? What happens when we choose to listen to the voice of that old captain? You know, you've already told us in the previous paragraph that that Christ's blood continually cleanses us from from every sin and, and we're to confess specific sin, you know, all the time. But will there ever come a time when God will say, enough's enough? Will he ever kick us off the boat? Notice the very next phrase. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins. Now watch this. Greek students will appreciate the fact that I'll point out this is a, what the Greeks called third class condition. You could literally translate this. If anyone sins and they will. It's hard to translate all the conditions in the original language. But that's what it's saying here. You could translate it to capture this third class condition. And when anyone sins. You might write in the margin of your Bible, because this text has confused many English students. Right next to that word when, or if, write in the word when. And when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. In in, In that first verse, John reinforces our direction in life, and now what he's going to do is reveal our defense. In life, we have an advocate. What I want to do is make five observations. Number one, our defense is unrelenting. We have an advocate, present tense. 
we have ongoing, never-ending, unrelenting, an advocate. He will never jump ship. He will stay with us all the way. We have an advocate. By the way, don't miss John's pronoun there. We have an advocate. Even the faithful apostle, now in his 80s, says, I need an advocate too. I'm so glad John included himself. You'd think by this time he wouldn't need one. Oh no. We have an advocate. This is the language of the courtroom. We automatically think of the lawyer called for the defense of the accused who stands alongside his client in court. It's much more than that. You might be tempted to, to think that John here is speaking of a court-appointed attorney, an attorney who might not know you, an attorney who might not care as much about your future as you'd like him to. But you don't have the money for your own attorney. You don't have the money for your defense team. You ever notice how, you know, the bigger the team, the less likely to go to jail. You have no money for that. You can only hope that the court-appointed attorney does his job, and, and they do. But that's not John's idea here. You see, in the law courts of the New Testament times, the advocate had a long-standing relationship with the client. He wasn't just some hired defender or pleader of someone's cause. He was the patron. He was standing counsel of the defendant. He was most likely the head of the clan tied to the descendants. This is a family matter. They both belong, bound together by the claims of honor for the sake of the family name. An advocate wasn't simply defending your cause. He was effectively defending the honor of his family's name. You need to know, too, that this word translated advocate, the noun parakletos, is the same title given to the Holy Spirit. Translated comforter or helper, John 14, 16. Both the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ have similar roles, but in in this context, in different locations, so to speak. Even though they are equally omnipresent deity, Jesus defines their roles in terms of geography to, to make an emphasis to our puny little minds. Very helpful, too. He said to his disciples, I'm going to ascend, and when I ascend, I'm going to send the Spirit. He'll descend, and he'll help you. He'll teach you. He'll, he'll indwell you. He'll anoint you. He'll convict you. The Holy Spirit, then, is God's advocate for us on earth. Jesus is our advocate in heaven. The Holy Spirit makes intercession from within us, Romans 8. Jesus Christ is making intercession on behalf of us. So guess what? You really do have a team. And what a team. This is what you call coverage. And we need that kind of coverage from this kind of advocacy. Why? Because we not only have an advocate, but we've got an accuser, right? We've got an accuser. And he's unrelenting too. He, he, he can't be everywhere at one time, so he isn't going to bother you and bother me at the same time, but he has a kingdom and communication and, 
and information, and they've had a long time to practice on human beings, and they've been practicing on us as well. And he just so happens to be the biggest tattletale in the universe. You thought your little sister was bad, or your big brother was bad. Nothing compares to this accusation. And the frightening thing about it, which these first century believers were obviously concerned about, and so are we, is that the accuser, Satan, in his kingdom, doesn't have to make stuff up. It's probably the only time Satan ever tells the truth. He doesn't have to lie about us. He doesn't have to lie about you, what you do, what you say, or what I do or say. All he has to do is tell God the truth about us. And we daily give him more information, more ammunition. And he's going to tattle. Because he's a tattletale. I can remember as a 10 or 11-year-old, I wasn't spanked for this, just so you know, ahead of time, Mom, sitting near the back row of church on Sunday. We had in that very formal church, non-denominational church where I was raised, wooden theater seats. Just sort of echoed, sat 800, 1,000 people. My three brothers and I always had to sit with our parents. So I don't know how I ended up that Sunday sitting in the back with my friends, but life was good <laughs> that Sunday. I was in the back. We were sitting there with, I was sitting there with about two or three other guys. And I still remember it. I used to remember where I was sitting. Passing notes, you know, about the sermon outline. <laughs> Key points. And, 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 and that very dignified, stately, very tall pastor was preaching away. Suddenly, in the middle of his sermon, he stopped. And he looked back at us. And I can still remember Dr. Dunlap was his name. He simply said quietly but with uh, severity, Sonny boy. And then went back to preaching. My life was over, but he went back to his sermon. <laughs> you know, after the message, you know, we got back as a family. My boys, you know, of course, you know, my brothers, <laughs> uh, my, uh, never mind them. My, my parents uh, asked me, you know, was your name changed today to Sonny Boy? <laughs> I said, not me. I was those other guys I was with, couldn't help it. And I thought, man, it was me, by the way. I hope they wouldn't tattle on me, and they, they didn't. God was merciful that day to me. The truth is we're all in a lot of danger because our accuser never misses an opportunity to point the finger. The kingdom of darkness misses nothing. The accuser can say, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you hear that? Hey, did you hear that? Did, did you see that one? Kick them off the boat. No, I'm their advocate, Jesus would say. And I'm not going to leave their side. He's unrelenting in his defense. Number two, he's unrestricted in his defense. One of the terribly irritating things, I'm sure, to the accuser is that he can never, he can never tell the father anything the father doesn't already know. Notice again in verse 1, we have an advocate, notice this, with the father. John uses this same phrase in chapter 1 and verse 2 to speak of Jesus' pre-incarnational relationship with God the Father. 
He now uses the same phrase in chapter 2 and verse 2 to refer to his post-resurrection relationship with the Father. With the Father. Face-to-face. Intimate communion. Our defense counsel knows the judge. And that's a good thing, isn't it? There's an intimate relationship and communication. There's nothing that can get in between them. And what do you think Jesus is saying in the inner chamber of God the Father? Do you think he's saying to the Father, well, look, Father, he's innocent down there. At least that's the way I interpret it. Do you think he's saying to the, to the Father, look, um, she had extenuating circumstances that were beyond her control as it relates to that sin. Do you think he says to the Father, you know, they were trapped. They were tricked. And we ought to just never mind. No, he doesn't say any of that, does he? Because he can only tell the truth. Why would he, if you can believe it, not maintain our innocence, but agree with the accuser and say you're right? He did do that, didn't he? Why? What, what kind of defense is that? I mean, can you imagine being in a courtroom setting and the, and the prosecutor's up there, you know, just railing away at you and, you're, and, and your attorney's going, yeah, yeah, you're right. I agree with that. He did that. I saw, uh, yeah, I believe it. You'd think, <laughs> thank you very much. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. You're, you're right. You're right. He did that. He said that. I saw that. He thought that. He planned that. Why? Well, because our defense, thirdly, is untarnished. Our defender's character is unsullied, untarnished. It's as if John, you know, thinks we might not know who he's talking about. So he adds, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And he adds this, the righteous. The Greek construction without a definite article, it's not referring to his identity, it's referring to his character. Jesus Christ, who just so happens to be righteous. What that means is, There's nothing that's going to slide under the table. Your security and your hope of heaven is not some bargain deal. There's nothing going on between our defense attorney and the judge. You know, there's there's nothing crooked, you know, to get you off the hook. He cannot advance a defense for you which he knows is not the truth. So all the while the accuser is pointing his finger, Jesus is saying to the Father, he's right. He's right. Oh, I saw that. How offensive. I I heard that. How blasphemous. I watched that. How cruel. How insensitive. How wicked. How self-centered. Yes, you're right. He's guilty. He has to say that because he's righteous. And it's the truth. He's unrelenting. He's unrestricted. He's untarnished. But he's also undefeated. Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He himself is the satisfaction. That word propitiation, halasmos, means satisfaction. 
He has satisfied the wrath of a holy God against us. He's paid the penalty. He's guilty. He has to die. But I died for him. I took his penalty. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word halasmos was used to describe the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box. Inside it contained the, the tablets of a law God provided to Moses. And, and so that law would, would be broken. The high priest would come in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the halasmos, the propitiation. So God would see lawbreakers, broken laws through the blood. So also we have broken the law, but we have accepted the blood of Jesus shed on the cross on our behalf as our covering. And God chooses then to view us lawbreakers, we all, through the blood sacrifice of his son. For he himself, would you notice the text? For he himself is the covering, the lid, the propitiation. He himself is the satisfaction for our sins. He is not only our defense attorney. He has agreed that we're guilty, and then he has paid the sentence of execution. He not only pleads for us, but he has exchanged places with us. He himself satisfied the payment for our sins. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, John adds, but also for the sins of the whole world. This might be a little tedious, but I do want to cover this just briefly. I've read commentators who try to say here that this means Jesus paid for the sins of all the Christians living in Ephesus, to uh, to whom John is originally writing. But also, he's paid for all the sins of all the Christians who live around the world. In other words, that Christ's atonement was only for Christians. Well, in an effectual way, that's true. But John never uses the phrase, the world, to refer to Christians living all around the world. He uses that phrase to refer to non-Christians who represent the world. And so this text has created a lot of heartburn. What does he mean? I think he means that the atonement of Jesus Christ is both limited and unlimited. Is he teaching universalism? Everybody gets in. No. It's unlimited in its potential. The penalty has been paid for everyone. So the invitation to the gospel can go to everyone with legitimacy. Whosoever will may come is not you know, wordsmithing. But it's limited in its effectual manner in the lives of those who do believe. The pardon is only as good as it is accepted. And I think what, what John is also suggesting, or probably this is his primary point, is that for the believer and for everybody else in the world who is yet an unbeliever, the plan of salvation remains the same. No one comes to the Father except through the atoning work of Christ, the person of Christ, John 14, 6. No one finds satisfaction from the penalty of sin except through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 9. The freedom from the penalty of sin is actual for the believer, but it is available for the unbeliever. 
But it's the same plan. And this is where universalism is taking an interesting twist in our own generation in the last 10, 15 years. It isn't one plan for the Western world and then God's just sort of going to, you know, not worry about the details and it'll be for, you know, different for somebody else in the Eastern world. I mean, if a Hindu wants to go and bathe in the Ganges River trying to wash away his sins, God isn't going to say, well, for him, I'll be satisfied by dirty river water. No, it's the same plan for anyone, anywhere in the entire world which means there's only one defense. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one advocate who stands capable of pleading our cause. There's only one who can satisfy the claims of a broken law by lawbreakers. There's only one who can stand between us and hell. It is this one who is our righteous advocate. And you want to know some good news? Our defender, our advocate, has never lost a case yet. Amen? He has never lost a case yet. And the accuser will say, but... You know, just look at you. Just look at you. John the Apostle is saying, no, 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 but look at Christ. Just look at Christ. He stands there on our behalf. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor from the 1800s, used to encourage his congregation by telling him, look, for every look at yourself, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Make sure you keep that ratio. It'll drive the accuser nuts. For every one look at yourself, it's ten looks to Jesus Christ, your defender and advocate. The hymn writer put it this way, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Watch this. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Now one more question and I'm finished. Will Jesus ever tire of defending us? I mean, doesn't the accuser tell you that? Oh no, it's not him again. For goodness sake, here he comes again. That's 14 times today. Will he ever tire of us? The readers of the letter would have wondered. And, and certainly every believer wonders, and, and, and that's one of those buttons the enemy will push in our hearts and lives. Surely Jesus will tire of us. What kind of assurance do we have that we won't get dropped? A couple of years ago, I had several claims on my automobile insurance. One on my pickup truck and one on my car. I had been in a minor accident in my pickup truck, and it was my fault. One of my kids had gotten into an accident with a city bus, and the bus won that argument. About the third time in a year, I had made a claim, 
And I got a letter from my insurance company telling me they were reviewing my case and I might get dropped because of multiple claims. I couldn't believe it. I made the startling realization that insurance companies only want people who don't make any claims. I thought that's what I'd been making deposits in all these years. How simple could I be? Those payments meant nothing. And in fact, not too long ago, this provoked my thinking, one author was actually dropped by his insurance company for similar reasons. What I liked was, and I don't want to read you what he wrote, he ended up turning his, his letter from his insurance company that dropped him. He turned it around and he imagined what it would sound like if the Lord did the same thing to us. Dear Sir, we're writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. We're sorry to inform you that you've reached your quota of claims. Our records show that since employing our services, you've erred multiple times in the same area and have a tendency to repeat the same misjudgments. At the same time, we've noted that your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of similar age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20 percentile. You have excessive tendencies to procrastinate. Because your sins have exceeded the norm of high-risk claims, you can certainly understand that forgiveness has its limits. With that in mind, Jesus sends his regrets and regards and hopes you'll find some other form of coverage because ours is now suspended. Don't we wonder if that would happen? Is that perhaps the reason that our confession is so often laced with apologies that we're coming again? Oh no, my dear friend. When you join the family of God, you are guaranteed permanent coverage. Your claims are met by an unrelenting defender who is the head of the clan. You find in him unrestricted access to the Father. You find in him an untarnished, unsullied integrity. And listen, you find in him an undefeatable record. He has never lost a case, and he will not lose yours. Amen? Are you sure about that? He will not lose your case. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's your direction in life. And when anyone sins, here's your defense. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Father, we do... In the name of Christ, without even beginning to understand all the ramifications and the glorious truths of a text that we can only skim today, that even now, even at this very moment, you, dear Savior, stand as our advocate. And it isn't that you have to somehow coerce the Father. For the Father delights and is satisfied 
in you. And because of that, he delights in us. We thank you that you not only plead our cause, but you have exchanged places with us. You, our elder brother, now stand to defend the honor of your work and name you have given us as Christians. 